Hello, welcome to Christmas Actually with Luke Allen and Lara Collier, the podcast that takes a look at the Richard Curtis film Love Actually, one day at a time. It's Monday the 30th of November, actually. Um, I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Lara Collier. How you doing? And our two guests, Annabelle. Hello. And Gareth. Hello, hello, hello. So, would you both like to briefly introduce yourself so the listeners know who you are? Uh, Sure, I'm Annabelle. I'm a classics and English student at Oxford. I've done a bit of radio work and a few jobs as a film extra. And I'm a big Richard Curtis fan. And you're the, like, there was a recurring joke slash line I said on Two Minutes About Time, which was continually asking the listeners to get in touch and guest on the show. And you got in touch. It's just the show was finished. So I invited you on to here instead. So, uh... yeah, it's great. About Time was one of my uh, favourite films. So I got in touch and obviously you kind of finished recording that podcast. But um, I'm really happy to be here on Christmas Actually. And Gareth, who are you? <laughs> who am I? I'm Gareth. Um, I run a, a Shropshire-based film company. Luke's come on board with a short film we're making, um, raising awareness of uh, racial equality um, in in light of the Black Lives Matter stuff. But it's not just about that. But uh, yeah, so that's me. So obviously, naturally, got a massive interest in films. Love actually is one of my all-time favourite films. Anyway, before Luke asked me to do this, but he gave me an opportunity the other night to watch the whole thing again. Any excuse. So yeah, that's me. It's actually such a relief to have film people who like Richard Curtis stuff because the number of film events I've been to where you can tell people really don't think you know what you're talking about when you say your favourite films are rom-coms. It's quite... Yeah. So it's nice to actually talk with film people who also appreciate it. Because I think, and Gareth, I'm sure you've noticed the same, you go to these events and everyone's just trying to name as many obscure foreign directors as they can so they sound posh. And it's like, no, About Time's a good film and I'll talk about About Time with as many people as I can. Um, Yeah, definitely, yeah. And I think with um, Love Actually and all the Richard Curtis stuff, and that's just one example, but a very good one, um, in the last, I don't know, 20-odd years... There aren't too many people as consistent in British cinema as as Richard Curtis is. Definitely. I mean, when he made Four Weddings, that was the most successful British film of all time when that came out. It was very quickly, I think, um, like beaten by Trainspotting, I think. But for, for a year or so, it was. And he has done so much, not to forget, literally saving probably millions of lives with Comet Relief. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what are both of your experiences with Love Actually? Um, for me, I think my first experience with the film is sort of seeing it pop up on TV every now and again as Christmas rolls in, sort of watching a bit of it each time and then finally sitting down to watch it all the way through, uh, maybe three or four years ago. And it kind of drew all the strands together. Um, but I think a lot of people see it kind of in bits on TV before they actually watch it all the way through. Do you think I'm right in saying that? Yeah, I think a lot of people might even think they've seen it because of how much you... Abs- it's one of those films that you absorb in pop culture so much. Yeah. A bit like, like, there are um, definitely certain ones. A bit like Bridget Jones in that respect, I think. Mm. Yeah. But, um, but for me, um, my experience of love, actually, uh, my mum of all people um, was round the other day and I said, oh, I'm doing this 
guesting on his podcast about Love Actually. So like, oh, make sure when you go in there, you tell me you stole that from me. And I was like, you what? Because I forgot, when I was a youngster, a long time ago, I was about 16, and I thought it was cool to go out and get drunk with my mates and stuff. Long, long time ago, before I became the professional person I am today, of course. Um, back then, DVDs, you could still sell for more than 25p. And it turns <laughs> out that I was desperate for a night out, and um, and I went and traded a load of my mum's DVDs just to get some cash. And Love Actually was one of them. So, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we open today's episode with the Prime Minister just having a discussion about... uh, Well, actually, we we would open it with what was a deleted scene, uh, which I don't think is on the deleted scenes. Uh, I just know it exists. Wherein originally the Prime Minister was going to say we've got a very important thing to talk about and then discuss what the UK number one record would be. Um, and they cut that because apparently it didn't really portray politicians very well that that was what they were talking about. Um, so they're discussing the president's visit, um, which, to be honest, the president's visit is a part of the story that I'm not as keen on. <laughs> it doesn't really... I mean, it goes somewhere a little bit, but it just seems a bit silly in my mind, but it's such a small part of the film. It doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I get that. I mean, I think, for for me, that bit when he's... Um, it's not in the bit you sent us, but what, what that leads on to when um, when he stands up to him in the press conference. My favourite bit about that is just the music. I think that this... Yeah. The the music from this, this film is so underrated. It's one of the the best scores I think I've ever ever heard in British cinema. It really is a fantastic music. Uh, and that for me is the bit I like the most about that. But I agree with you. I think it it is a little bit of, a bit of a tangent, isn't it? That whole little subplot. In fact, did either of you um, watch uh, How I Met Your Mother? No, yeah. personally. Because there is a scene in one of the episodes. There's a film uh, that was supposed to be based on Ted's life. I think it's called The Wedding Bride, or there's some sort of episode where they go and see a film that Ted is like very. It's supposed to be a cheesy rom com that's loosely based on his life. And last time I watched that episode, I was like, hold up, the music coming out of that is the Love Actually soundtrack. <laughs> and so they, they copied and pasted the Love Actually soundtrack into How I Met Your Mother, which I think is brilliant. And obviously, whilst at that point I didn't even have plans to do this show and I'd only seen Love Actually a few times, I, if you if you asked me, did I know the Love Actually score, I'd probably say no. But you hear that bit and it takes you right into yeah. the film. And yeah, I think Craig Armstrong's music is is amazing in this film. There's just slightly different riffs on themes for different characters, but yeah, sort of all the same motif per se. Lara, you'll know better about music than I do. Am I using the right terms at all? Um, sort of. I think it is a bit of a lay motif, but not. Mm, you you just can relate the music to each character, so I guess you could, you could call it a lay motif. Okay, that's good. It was a brief thing I covered in my film class the other day, and I was like, "This try and sound like I'm clever." Yeah. <laughs> Although I also found out that I've been incorrectly using the phrase soundtrack when I mean score for years, and that's bad. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure the credits for Unstable involve soundtrack composed by, when really it should say score composed by, and I can't change that now because it's been age rated. Would we class Billy Mac's song? Is that a soundtrack or a score? This is what I was debating. Um, I don't know. Because it's very much meant to be kind of a standalone song, isn't it? Yeah, and it's 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 diegetic within the universe of the film. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't know. It's 
because it's yeah, it's a piece of music that was originally. I, th- I think normally the line is whether it was originally composed for the film, but since they did change the lyrics from the original Wet 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 song anyway, then I guess it was. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, yeah, difficult one. Especially, I think especially when the characters are meant to hear it, it's very different, then, isn't it, to a to a score in a, in the traditional sense. Yeah, it, that that that's an interesting point. But yeah, I'm not quite sure. I did, I think I discussed this in a previous episode, but just in case I didn't, the reason they chose him to do Christmas is all around is because Wisher Curtis's most popular film at that point, I believe, was still Four Weddings. He'd done Notting Hill, but Four Weddings, I think, was the biggest. And after Four Weddings came out, Love Is All Around was number one in the charts for 16 weeks. And so Richard Curtis just thought it'd be really funny if he just made them listen to the song again. And so he opened Love Actually with Christmas Is All Around, which I think is is brilliant. So the Prime Minister and the President... I said the President's visit, to me, is always a part of the film that I tend to forget. Like... I forget that Billy Bob Thornton's in this film as the president. Oh, I um, always forget yeah. he's in it. Like the the speech is definitely nice, like that you talked about. Like the, the the speech where he lists all the different good things that came out of Britain. I think that's quite that that was quite a good speech that we'll we'll get to probably quite soon in a few episodes of time. Um and then the Prime Minister invites Natalie in. And I've got a note that when he was sitting here, apparently by complete coincidence, they dressed this set. And shortly after the film came out, there was a broadcast from Tony Blair, and he has the identical lights that were behind Hugh Grant as the Prime Minister. <laughs> so that was good luck for the uh, set decorators. <laughs> yeah. With that, you know, when Natalie comes in, I, I, I did note this as well as uh, there's a later thing, I can't remember now exactly where it was, but in terms of the score again, um, almost the timing of the music when she comes in is almost too perfect. If anything, mm. like as soon as he's, I you know, do I have to? Sh- what is it? Do I have to screw to get a uh, cup of coffee or a biscuit, whatever it is, around here? And then she comes in, and that 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 nice soft music kicks in. It's almost like, you know, predictably well. It's, it's so perfect in terms of the timing of it. It's it's you almost see it coming, but you know, it's uh, that I've always remembered that as well. Well, there was an interesting reading, which um, when we had Robert on the show last episode, I think, he claimed, like, he, he considers that Love Actually is Richard Curtis's way of saying that the rom-com trope is overdone. And it's his way of using every cliche. Yeah, to I just think say so, yeah. It's it done. Because he never really made a proper rom-com after this. Like, About Time isn't... They call it a rom-com, it's not really. It's, it's about love, but it's not necessarily about the love of... Um, you know, romantic love as much as it's about family love and friendship love. And I realised that Lara and Gareth both haven't watched About Time, so I won't spoil <laughs> it too much. But essentially, he never quite made a a romance, a rom-com since Love Actually. Because, yeah. So he's able to use these cliches. And some of it, when you break it down, he's possibly trying to say different things about rom-coms. About how you'll always root for the guy who's chasing after the girl even if he filmed her at her wedding and is yeah. <laughs> and and she's already married, you still have that little bit of you that roots for Andrew Lincoln. That is In, true. That is really true. Even when there's the unhealthy relationship between literally the most powerful man in Britain and a woman who works for him, which if you took it from her perspective, you know, if she didn't like him, there'd be some very um, complicated... Yeah. power dynamics within there and yet you put it to a nice score and you go oh i hope they get together and i think <laughs> yes. it's um 
it's it's obviously a very cynical view to look at, which I didn't notice until Robert had brought it up. But it was kind of like, yeah, no, I see this. That actually a lot of the relationships in this are really unhealthy. But possibly is Richard Curtis's way of 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 showing us how cliche the genre is. Because I think most of the relationships in his films are healthy relationships. So I think it's got to be deliberate. I think in Four Weddings, in Notting Hill, in Bridget Jones, in terms of who she ends up with, they're all healthy relationships. Mm, yeah, it's so yeah. interesting that he's kind of playing with those cliches because if we think about Love Actually, it's still, you know, synonymous with maybe the rom-coms that it's trying to um, kind of put a bit of satire on. So it's interesting that you sort of say he's playing with these cliches and yet Love Actually itself has kind of become the ultimate cliche of a Richard Curtis rom-com. Yeah, it's, 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 weird. it's, it's very similar to what happened with Scream, really. As a yeah. horror film, Scream was a spoof of the horror genres and yet it became considered one of the most loved and, <laughs> and appreciated horror films, which then got spoofed again with Scary Movie, which seems a little bit pointless, <laughs> but we'll ignore that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, so it's, it's possibly that where really he could be treating us as the audience as a little more intelligent than most of the audience seem to read the film as. Because actually, even looking at Richard Curtis's filmography, there's not as many romantic comedies as people might think. Like... Mary and Martha, Warhorse, The Boat That Rocked. Oh, you know, I love Warhorse. I don't even care. It's such a good film. Even the films which feature romance, like Yesterday, SEO Trot, and um, The Girl in the Cafe, they're not. That's not really what the centre of the story is. So, like, it's weird to think that Richard Curtis essentially gave up making romantic comedies in 2003, and yet we still know him as, the like, the king of the rom-com. I think this is a lot about him, though, doesn't it? Like, he might have only done it once or twice, but those two those two attempts are considered arguably the, the two best of their genre. It says, it says it all, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm currently going through a rewatch of every Richard Curtis film with my family at the moment, and... It's really interesting seeing the evolution of his writing to start with like the tall guy and Bernard and the genie and then to move on to um, Four Weddings. And I think the last one we watched was uh, Bean, the ultimate disaster movie, which oh, is obviously very film. different, but a very good film nonetheless. Yeah. Um, and it's very interesting to see how he evolved as a writer, because, I mean, things like About Time and The Girl in the Cafe and Mary and Martha, where he goes so emotion-centred. And actually, with The Girl in the Cafe and Mary and Martha, I don't know if either of you have seen either of those films. They're not as well-known. No, no, I'm not familiar with those ones. They're both very much... They're basically TV movies, and they're made for him to... for him to sort of teach a lesson about poverty. Um, so Mary and Martha are about... Um, two women who lose their sons to malaria and like the girl in the cafe is about a politician who's fighting for poverty at the g8 summit and they're just like there's still romance elements in there and there's still the comedy elements in there and yet he seems to be a lot more romance centered and a lot more as to pushing his ideals which are amazing ideals the idea of you know he started or was involved in the campaign make poverty history that's incredible and it's it's nice that he that that is still present in a lot of his work that there isn't as much of a line as people may think between richard curtis the filmmaker and richard curtis the activist yeah there was a scene in this film which was cut out which was about a poor family in africa and the love between them 
and how although things might be tough, love was going to get them through everything. And it's a lovely scene which you can watch on the DVD and Blu-ray deleted scenes, I believe. But you can see why it was cut out. It probably would have been a very difficult cut for Richard because it would have been perfect to put a message like that in what would have been such an amazingly successful film. But it didn't fit at all. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a fine line, isn't there, between sort of adding in that really nice message, but also I think it's got to be it's got to be tasteful. Um, and I can see why it might not have fit so well kind of in this film. So have we got anything more about the uh, the Prime Minister and Natalie? I realise, obviously, Annabelle, you're familiar with two it's about time where I read, like, every line out, but that would be half of the show if I, I did it. I was going to say, it's been <laughs> quite a long time. So, um, yeah, I think it's just, again, it's kind of showing that really weird uh, power dynamic. Um, I also think it's interesting that, you know, she comes in while he's talking about the uh, the president's visit. And, of course, it's when the president actually visits that their uh, kind of budding relationship really breaks down. So I think that's kind of a bit of foreshadowing there, maybe. Um, there's, you know, there's def- a definite link between the president's visit and his relationship with Natalie, so... Definitely, yeah, I agree with that. Also, um, of course, I know we said about the president's visit not necessarily being that important, but the other thing is... Um, like in any good film, we need the Prime Minister and Natalie to have their kind of, you know, their issue. They go their separate ways yeah. until, he, until he opens that Christmas card. And, of course, what the President does when he tries it on is what sets that up for that finale. So, um, you know, that is still that is still important, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Um, and so we move on from the President's... Uh, from the discussion about the President's visit to possibly the most awkward of the Jack and Judy scenes in the film. I don't <laughs> think they get stronger than this. I'm not quite sure. Um, it's it's a I like the concept for a story on this, but it's they, their story doesn't quite go anywhere. No, it's an odd one. I mean, I think as I was thinking about this, um, that there aren't many times that one of the most iconic family Christmas films has scenes when they're shooting a porno. <laughs> you know, well, they're they're supposed to be stand-ins for a major Hollywood sex scene, but people don't yeah. realize that. <laughs> but, but you know, I mean, there yeah, aren't many times you get away with that. No. You know, but but I suppose it's it's the you know credit to to, to Richard and credit to to the film itself that it it almost seems like that's that's not a problem, and it isn't. But um, I don't think very often you would probably get that on you know like tea time on BBC on Christmas Day. <laughs> no, I I think yeah a lot the the one good thing about how separate this story seems to be from the rest of them because the only link they've really got is that the um the AD on their set is the friend of Chris Martin's character. Yeah. That's like the only link we have and even Chris Martin's story Chris Marshall, sorry, not Chris Martin. Chris, <laughs> Chris Mar- Marshall's what is story. Wrong with you, Luke? He's an icon. <laughs> Chris Marshall's story doesn't really go I like where it goes, but it doesn't have it doesn't feel the same tonally. That it's quite I easy, it's I assume story. for T V edits to so cut it out. Funny. I know it is funny because the the humour is in the fact that you don't expect Chris Marshall to succeed and then he does. Like that is that is a it, it's a great joke because especially for the Richard Curtis rom com, you don't expect it to go the almost sex comedy route. <laughs> it remains reasonably tasteful for Chris Marshall's story, to be honest, but it goes very much like what you'd expect in sort of American Pie. Yeah. Which incidentally, I think that one of the girls he ends up with is Nadia from American Pie. Oh, but we'll, well get to that later on. I like the fact that they have got the discussion about, so what do you reckon for our new prime minister? Like, it's nice that we do have that link, that 
Yeah. I I guess in that way, yeah, you've got you've got the different levels of people's stories in the film. You've got Billy Mack and the Prime Minister who their lives are in the public eye. Or Billy Mack who's trying to make his life in the public eye. <laughs> um and then you've got, you know, the the small everyman as well. It's quite nice to have both in the same story. And I don't think I haven't I don't remember much about them because they're all awful. Those those romantic comedies that tried to be love actually, like um, Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, New Year's Eve. I don't think they do the same no, sort of close. No. mix. And they all blend into one for me. I've no idea which ones I've seen, <laughs> which ones I haven't. <laughs> uh, but that's the main bad thing with Love Actually is that it led to star-filled, star-studded casts that for awful <laughs> romantic movies. Um, but... Uh, it's it's a nice discussion that they have and it's I wish we'd gone a little more with Jack and Judy into their their awkwardness in intimacy with one another like how uncomfortable he was to ask her out compared to what they're having to do as their day job is quite funny and it would yeah. have been quite funny to sort of get that a little more to kind of you yeah. know maybe have difficulty with the first kiss and all these other bits you know I think it could have been quite yeah it's a nice concept that isn't it established yeah well, I think that's one of the that's one of the strong points of the film, isn't it? You know, each of the storylines could have been its own feature film, and it's the fact yeah. that we only kind of get snippets of them. Yeah. It's that you know, always leave them wanting more. Yeah, definitely. And I think um, I think that's sort of what Urshika has said: is he had like ten or eleven different ideas for films, and he just thought he'd make them all into one. Um, so, what I am currently working on doing slightly is in. Um, essentially turning the different stories into short films and see where like edit them to see whether they stand well enough on their own and i've only managed to do one so far which is the story with liam neeson and thomas sangster which you still need to send to me yes it, i still need to render it i oh, haven't yeah. had time away from my computer to render it yet oh, fair um enough. but it's it works that one <laughs> there's a few little bits where you cut it's, it's quite difficult to cut how how it links to other stories but a lot of these are very good as standalone stories yeah. I just feel like Jack and Judy especially are one which doesn't quite get anywhere. No. The, I mean, yeah. It's got potential, isn't it? But there's a bit more work to do there, I think. Yeah, and one debate that we've had between episodes um I th- no, it all is all the episodes that's happened. Okay, I was cuz we recorded that of order I have to check. One debate we had between episodes is when they refer to these as the stand-ins for Hollywood sex scenes. I thought they inte- they meant body doubles. But I've heard from other people that they literally mean stand-ins for testing the lights. But would they really make you do this to test the lights? No, I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, it would make more sense to be like stunt doubles, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah I would have said stunt doubles. I wouldn't say just stand-ins to like test the f***ing light in. Like, you could just use mannequins or something. I'm sorry, I swore. Yeah. I mean, like, trying to, like, like literally, like, uh, recreating the actions of, like, a f- and things. <laughs> you don't need to go quite that far to test that light, do you? <laughs> No, that's what what I was thinking. And the concept of, we need to test out the lights, Judy, take your shirt off, is just... (laughs) You don't don't want to be on that set, really. You wouldn't want to be Judy. Oh, great set. Have we got anything more to say about Jack and Judy, or should we go back, go into Colin and Tony? I think we should just spare a moment for Martin Freeman, because I think the roles that we know Martin Freeman in, you know, Sherlock, The Office, you know, even Fargo, it's almost like... I'm seeing John Watson in this, in yes. this sequence for some reason. Let's not forget Nativity either. Oh, yeah. Nativity. Oh, yeah. Good old Nativity. <laughs> Mr. He Madden. does do awkward really well, doesn't he? He's really good at mm. awkward. 
Yeah. And Joanna Page was really good as well. Like, I, I'm a massive Gavin and Stacey fan. And so it's quite weird seeing her play what is, I think, quite a different character to Stacey. Yeah, 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 definitely. Mm, definitely. But, yeah, it's um, it, it's always quite a surprise with this film, especially going back with, like, the modern perspective as to how many of these actors made it really big. Like, Thomas Sangster, Kira Knightley, like... When Kira Knightley was still doing, I think she was just doing pirates, like filming pirates around the same time as she was filming Love Actually. But she definitely wasn't the star that she is. And even Andrew now. Lincoln, you know, before Walking Dead. Andrew Lincoln, of course, yeah. You know, so yeah, I think whoever, I think it's Fiona Ware who was the casting director. I'm not certain, but if it is, then shout out to Fiona Ware. If not, then shout out to I'll, I'll insert, I'll insert the name as to who it is. I'm pretty sure it's Fiona Ware who is incredible at casting people just before they hit it famous. Like, the same with, I'm pretty sure Fiona were, if it is her, did About Time as well. And, like, About Time has people like Margot Robbie, like, bef- like literally months before Wolf of Wall Street. Like, she she knows to cast the people that are about to make it big. <laughs> yeah, I have to be honest, watching, like, thinking back to when I first watched Love, actually, uh, okay, I wasn't, like, you know the film guy I am now but I was a casual viewer but a lot of those actors I wouldn't have really seen before if I'm honest back then no and now look at them obviously Hugh Grant's a bit different but for the majority of them you know yeah it's rather impressive and of course Hugh Grant was someone who Richard Curtis made famous pretty much yeah I think Hugh Grant's got Richard Curtis to credit his entire career for which I think I've said before on this show if not then I'll say it now that Richard Curtis didn't like Hugh Grant when he first met Yeah, him. you said that. You said that like, you just when hated they were, him. Yeah, when they were doing the auditions for Four Weddings, everyone liked um, Hugh Grant except Richard Curtis, who said he was awful and he hated him. <laughs> and now, of course, Notting Hill, Bridget Jones, Love Actually, they've worked together a good few times. Yeah. Um, so we move on to Colin and Tony. And Chris Marshall is a really good comedy actor. Yeah, definitely. He He hasn't done as many features as he should have, I think. No, I like him. I think my only issue with him is he he tends to always play the same character. Yeah. You know, he he, he knows what works and he just keeps doing it, but does it to to great effect. Mm. I think I possibly like him a tiny bit more in my family than I do in Love Actually. But we we spend more time with him in my family. He's in it for like four seasons. Yeah. But he, yeah, he's got that very good character. I haven't seen enough of Death in Paradise, but I know that Lara, you said you. Oh, it Death in Paradise! He's so good because, like, for someone who's supposed to be like a professional, he is so quirky, and I just find it adorable. There was a there was a while where everyone believed Chris Marshall was going to be the next Doctor, and I really wished that. Like, I think that he would have been amazing as the Doctor, and it would have given him a chance to to play a slightly different role. Yeah. But he'd obviously still bring his quirks and his humour to the role. Um, and in, in, this, in the same way... Um, no, my point has completely gone. Oh, yeah. It was... Um, I think we discussed a couple of times. Take Chris Marshall's lines in this film and put them in the mouth of Sean William Scott and you've got a <laughs> creep. Like, he manages to take these lines and these concepts that are really, really creepy and pervy and yet he's quite charming with them, I think. Like, he's he's funny, and you kind of want him to succeed. 
Yeah, especially you think, well, he, he goes to, over to America literally just to sleep with women. Like, he doesn't have any intention to get to know him as such. But he, he doesn't feel like that. It feels like, you know, you almost like think, oh, he, somehow you feel like he's still a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how he does it. <laughs> no, I don't. It sh- on, on, on paper, it shouldn't work at all, but it does. I think it's the cluelessness. It's like what you say if you uh, took all his lines out of context. You know, you, you want to um, to kind of hate the concept of Colin, really. But um, I think it's the cluelessness, it's the naivety um, that's stopping from yeah. feeling predatory in any way. Yeah. Putting his film into a short, into a short, his story into a short film would be quite interesting, and possibly see if we could show it to someone who's never seen Love Actually, <laughs> and see whether whether if you just spend time with his character and no one else's, as to whether you'd still feel the same way, yeah, or whether the fact that he's evenly spread out throughout the film works. I don't know, but I I I kind of wish we got we got to see um, Chris Martian in a good few more films because he would have worked great as one. You know. In a lot of the major American comedy films, they have their go-to British actors when they need a Brit. Like yeah. Stephen Merchant's one of the big ones at the moment. Like yeah. Chris Marshall would have been great in a role like that. Yeah. Yeah. And as far as I'm aware, he hasn't done that many major films. No, no, he's more of a TV guy, isn't he? Mm. It, it, it could have been a whole manner of reasons. It could be, you know, that he, he wants to do TV. I guess we can't forget that option. So we have this discussion between Colin and Tony. And um, Tony got around quickly, didn't he? He's just gone straight off this film set to meet with Colin afterwards, you know. Yeah, yeah I did think that in that particular bit. I thought, well, it's on set. And he's, it, it, I, I never like it, even when I write my own scripts and stuff. I'm always conscious that if someone is in two places too quickly, like one scene to the next, unless it's clear it's the next day or whatever... Um, I'm never a fan of that, if I'm honest. I think just, I know it's a little thing, but for me, that sort of stuff is a little bit of a bugbear, that. Yeah, I feel like if you're doing something like that, I I really hope that I'm being right in the fact that I haven't done this wrong, because then I'm going to sound really hypocritical. But if you're doing something like that, I think just like a fade to black and a fade back in works. Yeah. But when you yeah. just cut, I mean, once again, it could be different for feature. I've only done shorts, but that tends to be the simplest way of going, hey, time has passed. Yeah, definitely, yeah, yeah. But um, but the other thing about his character as well is he he's, he almost seems like a bit of a, almost like a a connector, like a feeder character. Like him himself doesn't seem to do an awful lot, but he could just connect no. dots. Yeah, no, I mean, I've, to be honest, I think they could have done a bit more of I know, you know, they've, they've only got so much they can cram into a feature film. But um, given the nature of his job, it would have been quite nice to then put him in a situation in his personal life, totally away from that, Make him, maybe like in a situation where people are being crude about you know, um, bad language or nudity or something like that and just show, like, that contrast between his private life and what he does for a job. That would have been quite interesting. Yeah, I think the issue is he's the connector between the two weakest stories in the film. Yeah, that's fair, yeah. I mean, we've talked about how much we like the Chris Marshall story, but I think it's it's one of the weaker ones. Yeah, (laughs) Because the points where he appears, I think, at least in my point of view, whenever he appears, like, oh yeah, Chris Marshall's in this film. Like it's just the moment he like I like I enjoy it when he's on screen, but I'm not missing it. I'm not watching Hugh Grant and Natalie or whatever and and thinking when's Colin when's Colin coming back with. <laughs> to be honest, I think I think Rowan Atkinson's got more to offer in that sense, and he's only in like what two scenes, but yeah. And apparently, it was in the original script. I haven't managed to find the original script. It was going to be revealed that Rowan Atkinson was a guardian angel. 
Yes, I've heard of that. I think that's such... Well, that's kind of the role he plays, isn't he? You know, he, he lets um, Thomas Sangster kind of get on the... Get through security. So I think... Yeah, I love that idea of him being a Christmas angel. I think they could have made... Yeah. Mm, I'm still taking that reading. I'm still, like... It may not be canon now, but I'm taking that when I watch it. Because he tries to stop Alan Rickman from having the affair. And in fact, possibly the fact that he spent so long was what when Emma was like that was the point where Emma Thompson first caught on because that was probably why she was then checking his pocket to find the necklace so essentially it was Rowan Atkinson who made Alan Rickman come clean about the affair in the first place interesting which I think is one of the strongest stories in the film I like that yeah the two strongest stories in my mind are the Liam Neeson story and the Alan Rickman story oh definitely you've got just the the whole exchange where he says uh Tony says, no, Cole, there are a few babes in America, I grant you, but they're going out with rich, attractive guys. And Colin says, now, I like how Colin and Tony just call each other Cole and Tone. They're so basic nicknames. (laughs) Yeah. You got, now, Tone, you're just jealous. You know perfectly well that you go to any bar anywhere in America contains 10 girls more beautiful and more likely to have sex with me than the whole of the United Kingdom. And Tony says, that is total bollocks. You've actually gone mad. No, I'm wise. State-wise, I'm Prince William without the weird family. <laughs> no, Colin, no. Yes, Niet, da, nine, ya, yeah, darling. <laughs> I feel like I didn't even notice that exchange properly until I'm reading the notes here. But, oh, that's great. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's a nice story and I kind of wish there was... I, I kind of wish we saw a little more of Colin's story because there's... You get the build-up to him going to America over these few scenes. He then seems to vanish for about half an hour to 45 minutes. Then he's in America, he meets these girls, and then he's at the airport with them. There's, 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 I don't, there's, you get the payoff, and it's funny, but I think, especially in, if we look at like it as a separate short film, that wouldn't have the correct flow. No, and I think when he, when he goes to... You know, we spoke earlier about... Uh, it, it seems that Richard might be um, almost... Um, in a nice way as possible, to an extent, certainly taking the mick out of the whole conventions of rom-coms and that. Yeah. Um, when he's in in America and those girls will sit down with him and say, oh, we all share a bed and all that stuff, it's almost more like a dream sequence. That feels like, you know, you're, yeah. you're definitely taking the mick now. That, that, you know, if it was slightly on the cusp of could this really happen, now you're taking it to a point when, like, no one's believing that. Yeah. And I think that is what, make, what makes it so funny is you yeah. kind of think you're waiting... You're waiting first for him to fail, second for him to wake up. Yeah. And then it never happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It it would have been nice possibly to have had a little bit more of Tony at the end with his reaction because we only we don't really get it very much. Yeah. We get it briefly at the airport, but it would have been nice for Tony to kind of yeah. be a bit <laughs> Or maybe if Colin came back and kept the whole thing secret. Yeah. Like he, he gives the build up and then doesn't tell Tony anything. It was how was ah, it was all right. That could have been quite funny. Yeah, yeah, that that might be better in some ways. Um, so shall we shall we move on to the prep for the Christmas party between Harry and Mia? Mm-hmm. What do we think of this whole? I like the scene fact, here. I like the fact she's in black. It's almost like she's you know she's a it's a warning that bad things are going to happen if you carry on going down this path. I like that about about the you know the colour she's wearing. I mean, she's quite evil. Let's not like understate it. She <laughs> she is yeah. quite an evil person. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. She's I a bit too one-dimensional, I think. Yeah, I mean, her personality is 
that she fancies her married boss, which is kind of a bit, you know, of an excuse for her personality. I don't know. Watching her really, it really irks me to kind of see her, but also to see him kind of letting her carry on. Um, I think they're both, you know, at fault. Oh, yeah, definitely. Like, he's just letting her flirt with him when he is married, has children, and it's, yeah, it's just not nice. So who do you think is more at fault then? Or do you think they're both kind of equally? I think they're both equally to blame because, number one, Mia shouldn't have been flirting. And then, like, I don't know, I just don't think they should have been flirting. And the boss could have put a stop to it, but he didn't. So I, I just think they're both equally to blame. How far do you think they actually got with each other? Do you think it was just flirting? Or do you think they, they were sleeping together? Where, where do you I don't think they actually slept together. No, I don't. I don't, but I think there was the potential they could have. I think yeah. it's really nice that it's left ambiguous because, you know, when Emma Thompson has that uh, kind of wonderful line saying, you know, is it a necklace and yeah. uh, is it just a necklace? Is it a necklace and sex? Is it? And I think it's, we don't know in the way that she doesn't know. Mm, and I think maybe we wouldn't have been able to have any sort of relatability with Alan Rickman if we'd actually seen him have an affair. That's yeah. true. That's very true. If we, even if we'd seen them go off into a room together or something, that that would have been you'd instantly go, "He's a bad guy," and and drop it. But I think I read somewhere um, that Richard Curtis at first had had believed and planned in the script that it was that they had slept together, and then upon a rewatch, like a live Twitter rewatch, he changed his mind, like just a couple of years ago. The power of Twitter. Um, yeah, I don't know because you could have had some kind of kind of great scenes of him you know, kind of uh, coming back from her house, whatever, and seeming really uh, guilty or feeling like he regrets it. Um, there are, like you say, there's, there's such a potential for more scenes and all of the storylines, uh, especially this one. Also, I think the way that when, uh, when he gets found out, the way he totally crumbles straight away, I don't really think as a character he was cut out for cheating. That, and a proper cheater would, would have would have easily just, just fobbed that off and made some excuse, but he totally straight away... You know, he, he held his hands up, and I, so I think he just got in out of his depth. I don't really think, even if he was allowed to, I'm not sure he would have ever, ever gone through with it. Mm, that's accurate, I think. I've just realised, at this point, do we even know he's married? Uh, no, probably not, actually, for memory. So this this is almost the build-up to... This This is almost like, a, not a meet-cute, but the audience may at this point think, oh, Harry and Mia are going to get together and it's going to be sweet, and then you find out a few yeah. scenes later that he's with Karen. yeah. Yeah, that's fair, I think, yeah. I'd never even, like, twigged this until <laughs> I was just thinking now. if We we haven't done any scenes with Emma Thompson and Anna Rickman yet, have we, Laura? Uh, no, not yet. I think no, the com- the conversation he has as well, you know, when she says, uh, you know, why are we bringing families, wives and girlfriends? Um, and he doesn't seem, he says, you know, oh, bring, bring them, let the wives come, even though, um, well, he's got a wife himself. So that's quite an odd exchange, isn't it? Yeah. I guess so. That's a good point. And it it does seem at this point when he's asking her, you haven't got some horrible six foot tight t-shirt wearing boyfriend you'll be bringing, have you? He's he's very much trying to find out if she's single before she's hit on him. Like it's almost here like he's making it. It's a very faint thing where it could just be a casual comment, but it almost seems like he's trying to figure it out before we see her make her first move, which is literally the next line, to be honest, her first move. Yeah, but yeah. I think it fits in with what you were saying, Gareth, that he's not really cut out for cheating because it's and it's up to him whether uh, the family, wives and girlfriends come to the party or not and he could very easily have said um, 
no, they're not coming, in which case Emma Thompson wouldn't have had to be there. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Mm. Yeah, that that is that is true. So I he he possibly believes he's stronger willed than he is. Because we've got that scene later on where they're talking and he pretends that he doesn't find her attractive because at this point, at that point in their relationship, I think he is nothing to worry about. And it's because of that, because because he believes he's got a stronger will that it's actually quite sad seeing the breakdown of his relationship. And of course, I can't wait until we get to that beautiful Joni Mitchell scene um, <laughs> later on. Um, so should we go into uh, Daniel and Karen talking about uh, Sam? Yeah. So we enter Daniel's house and he's talking about how he there's not very much that he sees Sam doing now. You don't go spend much time with him. And Karen says, there's nothing unusual about that. My horrid son, Bernard. <laughs> Bernard, so what a name. We're gonna have to. We're going to have to talk about Bernard. Do you guys know about Bernard as a concept? The Richard Curtis Bernard trope? No, I was going to say, I'd love it if we were kind of in an alternate universe where the Bernard of Four Weddings was that Bernard. <laughs> um, so it initially started where back when I think he was in uni, there was a girl he liked who was stolen away from him by a guy called Bernard, who is now a politician, and I can't remember what his surname is. The MP's is. name is Bernard Jenkins. But essentially, in every Richard Curtis film, there is a character called Bernard. Oh, that's perfect. Uh, to obvious ones, like the lead role in the TV Christmas movie, Bernard and the Genie, to subtle things like, there's obviously four weddings, there's um, uh, there's a line in About Time, I think, where he just says that Bernard would be a more suitable name for his mum. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's when they're saying, Mary, does it suit her? He said, no, she's quite broad. Bernard would be a better, fit, I, better suit, I think. Or something. Is there a Bernard and <laughs> Bridget good. Jones? There must be, but I don't know where. Weirdly, there's not a website doing like a Bernard watch, which <laughs> a Bernard's is watch. a good. <laughs> it's, it's a good pun in itself. Yeah, exactly. I love that. That's that's what I really want to start like Bernard watch. Just for that reason, just because it's a yeah. great pun, and you know, go with it. From a camera, that going back to that scene, one thing I th- I, I I don't think I I don't know. I love it. I love it, and I hate it at the same time. When they come in, t- they come through the front door and that, and they you know put their bags down or whatever, and then the camera pans up all the way up to 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 Sam to Sam's room for me the amount of effort they've gone to produce that shot i would have had him lean over the banister and listening in i don't think there's the payoff from the shut door i know it says keep out on the door and that but for the effort they've gone to to actually get the camera going all the way up there i was expecting someone to be there listening yeah i think there might have been a deleted scene i think isn't it meant to be because the, the sign on the door becomes kind of an important thing later on? You know, we have the camera panning to it at various points when it has different messages on. Maybe. Yeah, and you can even see with the mess- with the writing on there now that he writes on it pretty often. You can see, like, the, the which I think is a lovely detail that it doesn't just say keep out. You've got underneath it, like, markings from when he's drawn on it before. Which Yeah. So whoever did the set work on this, I think, did a really good job. Yeah, kind um, of, yeah. But I, I like the shot, and apparently Richard Curtis was holding the camera himself at that point uh, for this one shot. Uh, but yeah, you kind of think, where's it going? I think there might it might have cut then into a scene in um, in Sam's room. Uh, yeah, that's what it felt like. It felt like it was leading to something remember. else. Um, yeah. From a story point of view, though, if there was the time, like we said, all of these different stories could be feature film or shoots in their own right. 
given what happens when um, Karen finds out about the deceit in her own marriage, I would have liked to see more of, of that relationship. He's just lost his wife. She finds out that her husband might be cheating on her. And just, uh, uh, you know, just to test her own morality in terms of, you know, that would have been quite nice to see how, how, that, how that one would play out once uh, she shared that with him. Yeah, I like this. And I do quite like the, the, the exchange they have about um, about whether he's a whether Sam's a junkie. And then um, you see, you hear his, Daniel's issues with his relationship with Sam, where he says, the problem is his mum always used to talk to him, you know. And I don't know, this whole stepfather thing seems suddenly to somehow matter like it never did before. This is the only mention that he's a stepfather, isn't it? Like, I'd never even, even though that line's there, I'd never even twigged it. Yeah, I think there is an. I can't remember when. It might be when he bumps into you know that blonde towards the end. But there is there is a one other point when he when it briefly gets t- touched upon, but it's very very subtle. Um, so there is actually a deleted scene that would have taken place between these uh, between this scene and when he first talks to Sam about what the problem is. Um, and it was another scene with um, Daniel and Sam, wherein um, basically Emma Thompson gives Daniel a website link to adult images of Claudia Schiffer and then he starts looking at them online and then he gets loads of pop-ups and then his dad comes by and so he pays Sam 50 quid to pretend it was him who was looking at all the pictures and it was a, it's a very funny scene but it, it does feel quite out of place I have to say that's not, it's about not 12 what I was expecting when you said no. a deleted scene yeah. we then move on to this scene which I think is one of the iconic scenes in the film which is of course the bench and him first talking to Sam um, like this bench, it's weird because I think it's only this scene we see it in, but it's like it's one of those images of love. Actually, I think. Yeah, it is. Yeah, but for me, watching it back, um, and okay, yeah, as I said, you know, obviously I make films; it's my job and everything. So maybe I'm overthinking this a little bit. But the the there's massive inconsistencies with the extras. If you look at them, um, there's the one uh, as a, as the scene opens, the wide shot, the ginger woman was walking past them, and then on the close up, she's only just walking past them again for the same direction, like a couple of things like that. And I thought, given you know, obviously it, it was a big budget thing, and it's Richard Curtis and everything else, it's stuff like that that I would have thought they'd be a bit more hot on, to be honest. But it's a couple of times that happens in that particular scene, the the, the extras going back into and not not being where they should be. But it's a small thing, but that, that's my moan out of the way. Oh yeah, I didn't notice that. Yeah, I'd agree yeah. with oh, that's, that. That's that's. I'm just watching this now, and it's oh. Yeah, they're all it's going cringy, the same. It? They're all going the same way as well. It's not like once you stop paying attention to the extras in this scene, it's just not. It's not as well done as you'd expect, like you say. Yeah, I would blame it on it being Richard's directorial debut, but that would be an AD's job, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, you know, he still watches it back, and he might have picked up on it, but it's not going to be his priority, is it? It's going to be focused on the actors. But yeah, that's true as well, what you say about them all going the same way. So at first they're all going left to right, and then it almost it's like there's just a sudden shift and they're all going right to left. There's yeah. no crossing like, past each other. Like they've all forgotten. And it's London, it'd be busy. Yeah. It feels like they've all forgotten something all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So there's Yeah, that. I can't believe I hadn't noticed that. That's a really awful continuity thing. And also that, Especially that, that particular ginger part woman. of London as well. You know, if you walk down there, you're kind of having to weave in and out of people as it is. So if we're really thinking about realism, there just would have been so many more people. Yeah. And of course... Well, there is there is a moment where two people cross over each other, cross past each other, actually, I've just realised. But then there are, like, yeah, there are cuts where, like, you cut to a different angle and someone's right behind them when they weren't even in shot in the yeah. close-up. Yeah. 
Now, of course, if they had actually filled that thing with loads and loads of extras, that sort of stuff you might have got away with because you wouldn't have had. You, mm. It would have been harder to spot it, but because there's so few of them, it's a lot more obvious. Yeah, definitely. It's quite strange. But yeah, it's a lovely view. Those benches. Yeah, it is. and it's obviously like pretty much centre of London. There'd be at least other people sitting on those benches. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's it's quite strange. I mean, it's nice cinematically to see them on their own there. It looks beautiful, but yeah, it's just not. <laughs> it's the wrong kind of like, like that. For instance, in um, like you know the, the bench scene in like Goodwill Hunting, you know, and they're in, in like a park somewhere, looking by a river. You would have got away with it there, but it's just the setting being the middle of London. It's just, it just doesn't quite fit. Yeah. I mean, for example, Lara, yeah. the bench that we filmed the music video on. Oh, yeah, the moving on bench. That would work because there's, like, that one person walked past over, like, the 20 minutes we were there. So you'd be fine with, like, a, with like an isolated shot like that, which has still got a lovely view, but not of the city of London. That you, if, if people didn't walk past, you wouldn't be bothered. But, yeah, I'm glad you pointed out the extras because normally I'd spot things like that, but I seem to have missed that entirely. Um, but yeah, it's it's very strange. Whoever did the continuity or ADing on this film, get in touch. Guest on the show. Look at the calendar. I don't think they'll want to after that. <laughs> <laughs> Whenever you say anything bad about someone, you've got to invite them onto the show afterwards. It's, That's true. It's, it's, the, it's the polite. Is that how I got here? You say something bad about me, <laughs> and then you thought, I'm get me on. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the conversation they have, I think, is quite nice. And I guess the question we've got here, which I'm interested to ask, is he says he's too young. Is he too young? I think so. <laughs> well, how know, old that... is he? Is he like 12 Because he looks so much younger than he is. I think that's the problem. Yeah. Yeah, because like, even Joanna, like, who, he's in, who he's in love with, she looks considerably older than him. Yeah. Because like, he looks so little. He does, doesn't he? He looks pretty much the same now, to be honest. Yeah, he's not like about he's ten just... years, isn't he? <laughs> to be honest, but um, as I, what I like about it is obviously he's, it, um, you know, his dad's so sort of pent up with all this awful stuff he's going through and how awful the real world is, and thinking it's all doom and gloom. And then something as simple as love is what his son's worried about. It's just, there's something really nice about that. Yeah, and I think he's genuinely Thomas Sangster has one of the best performances in the film as well. Like, yeah, I think his performance is brilliant. And okay, so Thomas Sangster was thirteen when they oh, filmed okay. this, which made him just five years younger than Kira Knightley was when they filmed this. That's weird. <laughs> yeah, but it shows that girls do tend to grow up a bit quicker than boys. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd put him she's at playing maybe older, eight isn't she? Or nine, maybe. Maybe that's a bit too yeah. young. But no, that that's still at a, around the point that I thought. Yeah, which is yeah, it's it's very strange. But yeah, I do. I do like this whole exchange and their whole story. And as I said before, it, it stands alone very well. The way it connects to the other stories also works great. But it, it's a, I'd have, I'd watch a feature film of their story, and I think Liam Neeson is really good in a role like this. Yeah, yeah. Because I guess it's not really. And I'm not a massive action movie fan, but it's not really the sort of role Liam Neeson normally plays. No, I think to be honest, certainly when he started doing all the. Taken one, Taken up seven, whatever it was, and all them. Um, I don't really think they do him justice. I think he's a much better actor than some of the roles he's taken on in more recent times. I've talked about this a few times. There's a really good film he did called Chloe, with Amanda Seyfried and Julianne Moore, and it's uh, it's a weird film about the sort of breakup of a marriage and 
Julianne Moore hires, uh, essentially hires a prostitute to see whether her husband, Liam Neeson, would oh, cheat. Oh, yeah, I have seen that, yeah. Yeah, and then she falls in love with Amanda Seyfried, yeah, and then their yeah. son falls in love with them. And it's, 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 it sounds a lot weirder and creepier than it actually is as a film. It's a really good sort of yeah, it's, thriller. Yeah, it's quite psychological, isn't it? But yeah, I like that. Yeah. And that was quite a weird role for Amanda Seyfried as well. That was the year after Mamma Mia. <laughs> <laughs> so, but yeah, I definitely recommend that film to anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, I would say Andy's old enough, but it's the same age rating as Love, actually, so it should be fine. Um, but yeah, I, I like this exchange. I like Sam's line here where he says, I know I should be thinking about mum all the time, and I am. But the truth is, I'm in love. I was before she died. There's nothing I can do about it. Because I feel like he's guilty for feeling bad about for, for like being upset about something else, which I think is is a definite thing which i think we've all had if not to this scale to like a smaller scale where you've got a worry on your mind when there's also a major other bad thing that's happening and you feel kind of bad for spending so much time thinking about this small personal thing also i think yeah you're right but i think as well as that he probably feels guilty because he's moving on quicker than his dad is yes you know and i feel my dad's still crying about it and i'm not but i feel i should be because he is because he supposedly knew his mum longer than his dad did as a stepdad yeah which might be some in addition to their relationship here. Yeah. Um I, I do I do really enjoy their story and I think it 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 works amazingly well. The one issue which was pointed out um actually by Robert last episode as well. He was very cynical about love actually last episode. <laughs> um but the one thing that he pointed out as well is that the dad moves on really quickly if you look at this as the actual time it takes place over. Yeah. Like, the mum's funeral happens, and literally, like, five weeks later, he's there with Claudia Schiffer. Hmm. Well, that's Claudia Schiffer, isn't it, you know? But... <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, I, I agree, yeah. that they, they, they are trying to cram an awful lot in here, aren't they? But the concept of it being set at Christmas was quite a last-minute thing for the film. Oh, was um, it? Yeah, so maybe if it wasn't set around Christmas, longer time would have been implied between that. Yeah, yeah. Because actually, there's not other than the concert. There's not much about Christmas in their story. No, if you said to me, like, name your favorite Christmas films, I probably wouldn't name it. Not it's not one of my favorites, but it doesn't scream to me Christmas. Yeah. In fact, this is an interesting topic. Topic we don't think we've actually discussed. What's your? Do you have a film which you watch the moment it's the Christmas season, like your go-to Christmas movie? Die Hard every time. Because mine, Die Hard all day long. <laughs> I I definitely agree with Die Hard. My first one's Lethal Weapon. That's an interesting. I'm... I haven't heard of it, heard of Leaf Weapon in that in that context before, but I don't. Disagree. I I always I like it at the start of the Christmas season because I like starting. I plan this out. I I start with <laughs> the slight Christmas films right, and yeah. then slide into the big Christmas films. Yeah. So I start with like Lethal Weapon, then move into like Gremlins, to then move on to like yeah. Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. So like it's a. I agree yeah. with Home Alone. No, Home Alone is definitely a Christmas morning one. Oh yeah, definitely. Brilliant. Yeah, and Home Alone too. Yeah, Die Hard's more of a sort of late Christmas Eve, have a few drinks. That's that's Die Hard, and then the next morning it's all met, you know, lovely presents and Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, definitely. I know people who watch Die Hard on Christmas Day, but I don't think it's quite Christmassy enough for Christmas Day in my mind. No, no, that is probably a little bit of a stretch. I don't think it screams festive, does it? No, and I know there's been an ongoing debate about whether Die Hard counts as a Christmas film, but it does. I, I think, think any does. film set at Christmas yeah. does. I mean, some people... Nativity films are always go-tos for me. Yeah, as well. yeah. Oh, yeah, those are great. 
I mean, some people like consider Frozen to be a Christmas film just because it snows in it. I mean, How? it's like there's no that logic is to that. Not Christmas. No, Bugger exactly. Off. Yeah. Precisely. You can watch any Shane Black film at Christmas because there's always Christmas in a Shane Black film. Yeah. Mm. Um, Equally, Bridget obviously, Jones. Obviously, of course, Lethal Weapon. Bridget Jones. Yes, Bridget Jones. Oh yeah, Bridget uh, Jones. Party. I always forget that it's Christmas, but yeah, it is. And I recently discovered what Richard Curtis's early TV film, Bernard and the Genie, which is a Christmas movie about a guy played by Alan, played by Alan Cumming, who has a genie played by Lenny Henry, who grants any wish he wants. And Rowan Atkinson's in there as his grumpy boss. It's a really good film. Have we got anything more on um, Sam and Daniel before we, we move into Sarah and Carl? I don't yeah. think so. I just wanted to say, I think it's so nice having this scene... After I know you said there was a d- deleted scene in there, but after the scene where he's kind of broken down, because it's kind of moving from that grief to this, you know, it might seem silly, but it's like this hope for the future. It's his son um, sort of so innocently saying, you know, I'm in love. And I just think it's really nice having those two scenes uh, with two people in each time following each other. Yeah. Um, but having that scene, you know, where he's kind of really approaching his, his kind of emotions about it, and then suddenly he's expecting his son to come out with something maybe similar, and actually it's this slightly more hopeful kind of emotion. Yeah, and so we only um, we only get a tiny bit of Sarah and Carl this um, this episode, and it's quite sweet. You just see very this very brief thing of her getting ready and then saying they both finish off about the same time, and he says night. Although. Do you get the idea that she almost is deliberately staying because he's staying? Oh, yeah, definitely. She stayed because he was working late. She's hung up on him big time, isn't she? Yeah. And actually, I guess that's why she's doing her makeup then, is because he's about to walk past. Yeah. And correct me if I'm wrong, but when when the phone goes and it's like to do with her brother and that, at this point, we're not, as an audience, we're not yet aware of, of who that is, are we? Not yet. No. You know, so And it's quite nice that we have a picture of the brother on her desk, which I noticed. Yeah. That we that these things are set up and Richard Curtis isn't af- isn't afraid to like to not tell us everything. Because there's I like some writers it. who will spoon feed yeah. the whole time. That's what I like because I mean to to be honest, looking at that, especially all the other things you've got going on like with, with um Alan Rickman's potential affair and all this other stuff, is you could be forgiven for thinking, is that a husband? For instance, you know, you're not quite sure uh, at that point. And I like that. It keeps us guessing. Yeah. And I like at first, when we first see her, we see her at the wedding talking to, and I've completely forgotten his character's name, talking to Andrew Lincoln's character. And it's almost like, it's almost that they, that Richard Curtis establishes that as a meet cute and then goes, no. Like, you think, are these two going to get together? No. And I think... Well, what, sorry? What's interesting there is, uh, you often find this, um, is the person dishing out the relationship advice is the one who's in the biggest kind of dilemma herself. Yeah. Definitely, I see that. And it's... Um, what, what I like in, in their whole story is I, I do like the sort of innocence of it. And obviously, in comparison to the other points that Robert made last episode, this would be a healthy relationship. But it's quite sad that their story doesn't seem to go anywhere. Yeah. Like, like he, you know, her brother phones on the night that they're going to sleep together, and then they don't, and then we don't hear any more of their story pretty much after that. And it's just, that that felt a little bit 
uncomplete. But then maybe that's a good thing with Love Actually as well, that he doesn't tie up every end. Maybe that's there's something quite sweet about that. I don't know. Yeah, also, perhaps, um, you know, you could take from it that the fact that she takes that decision to not sleep with him and chooses to go and see her brother instead is almost her saying, I'm picking my brother, not you. Yeah, and his character is very one-dimensional. Yeah. Carl, which I guess is a relief to have it for a male character for once. Yeah, I, mean, I suppose... Like, to have, a, to have a male character that's just the love interest rather than... You know, he's he's her love interest rather than, like, every other rom-com where it's the other way around, where she's the love interest and that's her entire personality. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it might just be that with with him in particular, there wasn't time to do any more than that. But um, with all the other stuff they got going on. But yeah, he doesn't seem to have an awful lot going for him other than, than his looks. I feel like I heard that, like, she's not... Her story isn't in Red Nose Day, actually. Which is weird. Like, we don't see any of her story. I feel that I could be wrong that um there was some bit with her that was cut out that you can find somewhere yeah she's got a credit for it but all the versions of red nose day actually that i've been looking at online i don't remember seeing laura linney and her story at all no i can't say i do um which is a shame really because it would have been nice so unless you've got anything more to say about that then we just conclude briefly on jamie for the last 35 seconds as he as the Glasgow, the Glasgow love theme starts playing at this point, which is the piece of music that people most love out of this film, apparently. Yeah, for me, um, well, on that, for me personally, the PM's theme is my personal favourite. But um, but in terms of him and that, what I like about that scene is he starts off in the dark and he's just found out that you know his whole life's been a bit of a joke because his brother's been sleeping with his missus and all that. It feels to me like he starts off in that darkness and when he opens those windows, it feels like a very only only um, you know. Um, uh, that people behind, you know, who made these decisions could say for definite, but it feels like when he's opening those windows and you're looking at it, it feels like a very intentional shot. Then the light comes in and it's like, is it Portugal he's in? I think, I, think it's I, France, I wasn't quite it? sure. Wherever it is. Oh, it is France, isn't it? Yeah. Is it France? Where, where, wherever it is she's, in the world. She's a Portuguese cleaner, but they're in France. Oh, okay. That's, that's where, where, where I got confused. But anyway, it feels like when that shot, when... They, they open those 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 windows and the light comes in that that's almost like his savior like this is the you know he's letting light back into his life and the love if you like which is obviously the running theme through the whole film it feels quite intentional that yeah i think so and it's really sweet and he says alone again naturally which is just his last line which i think is it's a bit it, it it's very much a sort of cliche kind of thing as oh we feel sad for him now but it it, it doesn't it's only in reading that, that that seems a problem. And I got one interesting note about the house, quite sad note about the house, is that the house got burnt down in a heat wave in France very shortly after the film was finished. Like, mm, so like at the point of the commentary, they said that the house no longer exists. So that's what within a year or two of filming, Blimey. I'd imagine. I don't know at what point the commentary was filmed and how long the film took place, but at a rough estimate, I'd imagine there'd be no more than like one or two years yeah. difference. But yeah, it's very sad. It looks like a lovely place. It does, yeah. If if any of you got anything final to say on Jamie and his story before we do our... Yeah, his, his storyline is my favourite one out of the whole film. Um, I don't know why that is. I know that kind of the Emma Thompson one is usually... Or the Liam is more popular, but... I just love this storyline so much. I think it's so, uh, so, so lovely. And I love that scene in the lake as well. And then them sort of marching to collect her from the restaurant at the end. I think it's just, uh, 
I, I like it, and obviously it's, it's the one that one of them that they want us to resonate with the most because it's the big romantic gestures like right at the end of the film, and it it is quite fun. I think the it's interesting that this is one of the only stories that do, possibly the only story that doesn't involve Christmas at all. Um, yeah, that's a good point. Outside of that, yeah, I think there's a lot of jokes on. I recommend the commentary to anyone because so many of my notes come from that. There's a lot of jokes in the commentary where Hugh Grant just seems to pretend to hate Colin Firth every time he's on screen, um, and I, I, I'm wondering if that's if that's some sort of loose continuation from Bridget Jones. I'm sure kind it of is. Thing. Uh, but yeah, the, the comments that Hugh Grant makes about Colin Firth, like he does it a lot, and it's it's always very very funny. I, I don't think it's just on the commentary. I think he's the same in interviews and. Um, like Hugh Grant claims that the Hugh Grant image that Richard Curtis creates is very different to how he is as a sarcastic, horrible person he claims he is. <laughs> <laughs> so um, he seems to be at least very self-deprecating. So have we got any final comments on Love Actually before we promote and plug away? No, not from me. No, only thank you for giving me the chance to watch it again and r- remind myself of how brilliant it is because it is a really, really, you know really good probably in it i know it's easy to say when you're on a show about it but but genuinely if you just asked me in the street it was although that would be a bit weird but if you did um (laughs) it is if for its genre it probably is the you know the best of what it does for me lara now i'm partially tempted to just go around shropshire going up to people's um, do do a a bonus episode of going (laughs) to people what's the best rom-com but um social distancing might make that a little difficult and you, social anxiety as well. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Annabelle, any final comments? Um, no, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Okay, so we'll start with you. Have you got anything available that you want to plug? Be it any of your anything you're involved in, any social media? Yeah, um, you can find me on Instagram at Annabelle underscore Fuller X, and also look out for uh, season four of The Crown coming to Netflix. I think it will be out by the time this podcast uh premieres but i have um a bit part in that that's all really okay and we'll keep a lookout for that weirdly i was listening to something about the crown today i've never watched it but i was listening to oh it was a uh, richard curtis in conversation with vanessa kirby and they were talking about the crown a lot so oh look you must watch I, it I, so i love it tune in vanessa kirby is great so, in it by the way mm. of course she's someone who we i forgot to mention when i talk about you know, Fiona Wurz casting people before they become stars in her supporting role in About Time as well. Um, so, uh, Gareth, anything to talk about, plug Well, I think, at all? I think you know the answer to that one, Luke, because you're part of it. I definitely <laughs> do, yes. Um, yeah, this this week's been a bit of a, a bit of a, shall we say, a bit of a letdown. It's no one's fault, but given the nature of COVID getting it worse and worse, we took the, the regretful, the, not regretful, that's not right, reluctant, reluctant decision to postpone our upcoming auditions for for note to the listeners that this is two months ago. Oh yes, true. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah I forgot about that bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, forgot about that. Um, yeah. So hopefully by the time this is out, we might be closer to you know having dates in place. But who knows at the moment? But anyway, the film itself is a short film. Um, jumping out your skin. It's based on a Freaky Friday concept of a black guy and a white guy swapping bodies, swapping skins, so they get to understand what it's like to live in each other's bodies and what it's like to live. You know to live a day in the life of a black man and a white man and so on um and 
obviously typically there you've got the white guy's racist the black guy feels oppressed and that and so they start to understand each other a lot more so that's the concept that's what we're working on at the moment and i like the way that you're you're not i mean at this point the script's not been complete but with what you were saying to me about it that you're not just making him a one-dimensional racist white guy no not, either. At, all, not at all you're showing him as almost a victim i mean obviously if i say anything and you want it to be cut that's fine you're showing him sort of like a, a victim of society of the way the, the value society's given him yeah exactly almost. yeah he's got his own reasons we don't, we don't we don't excuse racism but you do get the opportunity to understand where he's why he feels the way he does and why society may have twisted him up into the person he's become it's not just oh yeah you're nasty and white and you're innocent and black or vice versa there is there is good and bad to both sides of the argument and i'd imagine he doesn't consider himself to be a racist no no not at all not at all um and yeah that's why it, it has been called um a black lives matter film but we're very keen to make it clear that whilst we were inspired by obviously the values of, of what of, of what's going on in the world there's, there's there's no getting out of that and that's important this is not some kind of propaganda for any one side this is very much an independent thing down the middle and it's creative and it's fictional but it's based on very real issues yeah because i remember when i first heard about it before get, getting in touch and getting involved i part of me was kind of like is this just jumping onto the the hype of the movement and then when you started explaining it to me i was like this is a really good original idea to take the body swap and, and take a more dramatical and yeah. political turn on it. Essentially similar to what we said that Richard Curtis does in creating entertainment that still has his own views and values out there. Exactly. And I think, to, I think and, the yeah. best drama does do that. You know, it, yeah. you should always be able to put... You're not telling people what to think, but I think any any good filmmaker or writer, whatever they might be, is should be putting their own, you know, their own view, view across in some way or another. Um so yeah, so that's what we've got, and we've also the, the sort of the deeper dynamic we've thrown in since. And I'm <laughs> awkward; I'm not sure if I discussed this yet, but here we go. Um, <laughs> is um, the, the reason that the body swap happens, um, and it was actually Luke that asked me this question to make me think about it. Was that because um, we were saying, "Oh, do we just accept that body swaps a thing in in the, the universe this happens in, or what?" Um, is it's the it's the wish of the, the black lad. He's like sixteen to twenty three, playing age. So if anyone's interested, get in touch. Um, his little sister gets fed up with him going into protests and fights and says all I want, and he he reckons he's doing it for her and for his, his heritage and he's doing her proud and he's protecting her values and fighting for her rights and all that stuff and all she wants is for her brother to be a brother again so she sees him getting involved in this scrap this older white guy and says I just wish that they could see understand what it's like to live in each other's skins and that wish is what makes it come true and when they have swapped bodies the only person who can see what's happened is her because she's like 10 years old that what we're getting across there is the ch- the children aren't racist yet you know we're getting across that that she doesn't see the skin she sees the person within the skin she sees past the skin like any child because racism isn't it, you're not born racist you're taught it that's what we're trying to get across is the children can see through it and if we educate the kids then we'll end the then we'll end the whole issue that's the you know the idea the idealism of it i know but that's that that's the idea behind it yeah, and I think it's brilliant, and it does from the stories you told me, and you did briefly mention that to me a few weeks ago. Oh, that's right. <laughs> is um, <laughs> from from the stories you've you, you you know you've told me about it. It's 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 not just that you're going to watch it and feel like you're being preached at. No, not at all. You're not going to feel no. like you're being manipulated. You're going to watch it and hopefully agree with yeah. everything that's been said. And obviously, they they still have a chance to get involved. You're writing, directing. I'm assistant director, and yeah there's yeah it's 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 becoming quite a big thing around shropshire like it is getting a lot of yeah pickup so So it's it's the potential to be quite a 
a loved indie film. And to be honest, from what you're saying and how long you're looking at it, I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up crossing the line into feature. No, I mean, I've been taught over that because the whole point of jumping out your skin was to this time around, um, I won't go into into all these details because I'm sure your listeners have got better things to do. Um, but we started off trying to make a feature film about anti-bullying, autism, domestic violence, which we are still going to attempt eventually. So we thought, I'll tell you what, let's go go back to drawing board and let's just make a short film make it still important and you know and valued and stuff but start with a short film and then build up but it seems that jumping out of your skin has got so much going on it's like this really is going to be difficult to get into a short film time constraint but um, i don't want to fall back into the same trap of oh we're doing a feature film again without anything to yeah, anything to base it on in terms of previous work so yeah, I'm just describing it as an indie film at the moment. I don't say either. I'm just like... <laughs> yeah, that's probably... That's, I might have to just start doing that. It's quite a good idea. But um, but yeah, just to finish off on that, anyone does want to get involved, because by Christmas we will still be... I, personally, I don't think we'll be in a position to do much, well, probably before the, at least the spring, the way things are going. Um, so anyone wants to get in touch, info at uk is the email address. Drop us a line and let's uh, go from there. But yeah, sh- hopefully... All being well, it should be an exciting year or so for us. Okay, and Lara, where can the listeners find you? You can find me on Instagram, Lara Collier underscore official. Um, obviously, Facebook, Lara Collier Music. You can also find me on YouTube. I've got like three music videos out. Um, moving on, The Happy Song and A Thousand, which is great. And yeah, <laughs> go check it out if you want. Um, and then you can also find my song moving on on spotify amazon itunes all that jazz the listeners can find me on twitter at llama underscore bottle zero it's an old twitter account i created when i was like 12 um you can find me on instagram the ginger luke on facebook at luke allen film all podcasts radio appearances newspaper articles short films anything i'm remotely involved in is available at lukeallen.co.uk and this show is on facebook twitter and instagram at christmas act pod and they can also find us on IMDb. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to today's episode, and we will be back on the 2nd of December when the Prime Minister asks Natalie about her life, and Bill Nye is interviewed by Anton Deck. Christmas Actually theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Christmas Actually is produced by Bottolo Productions and is distributed by Lemming Drops Studio. For more podcasts and blogs, visit lemmingdrops.com. Music